Let's make our way together into our Bibles. I hope you have one with you this morning or you can lay your hands on one quickly. And if so, I want you to meet me in Ruth chapter 1. If you have your Bible this morning, I want you to meet me in Ruth chapter 1, where last Sunday, those of you who are here will remember, and those of you who are not need to know, we launched a brand new series of studies in God's Word that are going to take us into the spring and, and really through, through some of the summer months as well, as we look together at the two books of the Bible, the only two books of the Bible that are named for women. And those are the stories of Ruth and Esther, who I am setting out to show you what I have discovered about them, which is what it says on the screen behind me, that these two women, despite radically different circumstances, radically different life stories, were both, in every sense of the word, they were world changers as followers of God. And because of what he was able to do in them, though he was sovereign over them, the choices they made made them available and useful to him. Now last week, just so you know by way of background, we dug into the first five verses of the book of Ruth. We're going to begin reading here in just a moment. But in those first five verses, we were introduced to a family. And that family was the family of Elimelech. Elimelech was a, was a Jewish, a Hebrew man. Uh, his wife was Naomi, and he had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And, and, and there was a famine in the land, so they journeyed to Moab, about 50 miles to the east, to a foreign land, out of the land of Israel, because they heard there was food there. And in, in very quick succession, at least in our Bibles, it took a few years for it to actually unfold. Uh, first, Elimelech, the husband and father, died. Then the sons married Moabite women. And then some point after that, both of those sons died, leaving these three women, we have Naomi, we have Ruth, and we have Orpah alone, widowed and alone in the land of Moab. And that's where we left last Sunday. Now we're going to begin reading from that point forward, beginning in Ruth chapter 1, verse 6. I'm going to read all the way down to the end of the chapter, verse 22. I ask you to follow along in your Bible, where this is what the Word of God says. Ruth 1, 6. It says, then she, that would be Naomi, still sort of the central character in the story to this point. It says, she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Naomi says to Ruth, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you. Or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was Naomi's hometown where the story first began. 
And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned with, and with, Ruth, with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So those of you who are sports fans this morning know that we are currently at the cusp of the season everybody knows and calls March Madness. The season in which college basketball crowns its national champion. If you're a sports fan, you know that. But if you're a sports geek, if you're a sports nerd, what you also know is not only is this the season of March Madness, it is also in the National Football League, professional football, contract season. It's contract season in the NFL, which means that millionaire athletes and billionaire owners are doing their annual dance around the following question. How much are you worth to me? How much are you worth to me? Specifically, to drill down just a little bit further, how much are you worth to me in terms of getting me where it is that I want to go? Whether that's a, a higher income bracket, whether that's a Super Bowl championship, how much are you worth to me in terms of getting me where I want to go? And as a result, because that's what's going on in that sort of sports subculture right now, what's happening on almost a daily basis is some players are being cut because what the owner has decided is you're not worth what I'm paying you. You're not giving me proper return for the investment I've made in you, so I'm cutting you loose. Other players are traded because an owner or a general manager looks out over the landscape of, of all the 31 other teams and says, you know, I, I kind of like my guys, but there's somebody over there I like better. Why do I like him better? Because he can do more for less. He can do more for me to get me where I want to go than the guy I currently have, and so we're going to trade him away for someone we like better. And then, then there are those precious chosen few who sign astronomical mega deals, the likes of which most of us can't even begin to fathom. The latest of whom, for those of you who may be interested, is the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys, Dak Prescott. Last Monday, he signed a contract that next NFL season will pay him, get this, $65 million to play the game of football for a season. Now, the Cowboys are still going to go 8-8. Eight and eight. I just want you to know that right now. But if Jerry Jones wants to throw his money away, it just makes it easier for my team in their division. So I don't really care. But that's what's going on. Because that's how the sports world works. How much are you worth to me to get me where I want to go? To a lesser extent, the business world works that way. Contracts are signed. People are hired and fired. Executives are turned out one for another. And sadly, and the reason I sort of paint this picture for you as we begin this morning is that often that's how the world of friendship works as well. Even inside the church of Jesus Christ. Because you see, here's what I'm saying. More often than any of us would want to admit, certainly more often than I'd want to admit, and I think you'd feel the same way. We as believers far too often are secretly and silently sizing one another up. We're sizing each other up. We're sizing churches up. Asking ourselves questions we'd never utter out loud, how much are your services worth to me? If I come here, what am I going to get 
out of it? Is it worth the investment of whatever it is I'm investing, my time, my energy, my giving? How much is it worth to me? What are the benefits for me of of choosing to walk with you? As an individual, as a brother or sister in Jesus Christ, are you the kind of person that if I come alongside, you can help me get where it is that I want to go? And how many of your issues am I willing to put up with? And for how long before I'm just not willing to do it anymore? After all, I can always find new friends. I can always find a different church. Now, that stings. But there's not a person in the room this morning who can't tell me that isn't true. This is the way the culture of the church is working in the days in which we were living. What I'm saying in a nutshell is this, is that too often our relationships in the world and in the church are far more transactional than we want to admit. Relationships are transactional. And that is why this morning's scene in Ruth chapter 1 is so incredibly vital for us to consider together Because again, what we saw last week in the first five verses was a a bitter sequence of tragedies that befell Naomi and her family that at the end of verse five, as I already said, left this woman, Naomi, a Jew, and her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, alone, impoverished, and in, in Naomi's case, far from the place where she'd grown up and that she called home. And while the passage we just read, the story we're gonna dig into this morning says that that Orpah returned to Moab, where it, where it lands is that Ruth, one of the two daughters-in-law, and Naomi determine together, after dancing around certain other questions and certain other obligations that it might mean, but they came to a point where they determined, we are going to face the uncertainty of the future together back in the land of Israel. Orpah's going back to Moab, we're going back to Israel. And what I want to show you in God's word this morning What I hope to show you is, first of all, how they came to that kind of a decision, and then second of all, the nature of the relationship that was forged because of it. I want to see how they came to that decision and the nature of the relationship they forged through it, and to that end, as is often the case, there are three things I want to draw your attention to in the story this morning, the first of which is this. The first thing we need to see to understand how they came to the place of deciding we're going to go on walking together, staying together, doing life together. The first thing we need to take a look at, and this is something I believe that is vastly, uh, most of the time, quite overlooked in this story, but it is what I would refer to, what I believe is, number one, the remnant of Naomi's faith. The story of their journey to do the rest of their lives together, to walk together, to stay together, to stick together, is rooted in the remnant of Naomi's faith. And and the reason we need to take note of that is because if you look at the end of the passage, down about verse 19, I want you to look there in your Bible with me for a moment. Because of what's recorded in verses 19 and 20 and 21, of the things that Naomi says and does there, Naomi is often given, and if you studied the book before, you may know this, a very bad rap. Because here are the words that she uses upon going home. It says, they went, verse 19, to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole city is stirred up. Everybody's murmuring and mumbling. Is this Naomi? Uh, if it is, it's not what she used to look like. We're not sure, so let's find out. And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Naomi meant sweetness. Call me Mara. Mara meant bitter. My life has changed. My circumstances have changed. Thus, I want you to to consider my name changed as well. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. So why do you call me Naomi? 
since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. And again, because of what Naomi says there, preachers and scholars down through the years have been very, very hard on her. They, she has been characterized as a bitter, cranky, tired old woman who's turned her back on God. And listen, I don't have any insider information. I don't claim to know anything that anybody else doesn't know or discovered something that others haven't yet discovered. But in my view, that is not necessarily a fair estimation of Naomi at this point in the story at all. I don't think it's fair. And partly because if you go back and look at verses 19 and 20 and 21, everything Naomi says there is true. That's exactly what happened to her. She went out full and and she came back empty. Life had been very, very hard for the last decade plus. Uh, Lots of loss, lots of hardship, lots of loneliness and tears. Everything she says is true, regardless of how she was handling it. She was painting an accurate picture. But much more, I, I, I think maybe the harsh treatment of her is unfair because she does acknowledge in those verses that, that hard as her life had been, God was the sovereign orchestrator of her situation, of everything about it. We talked about that last week. God is sovereign. It's one of the key themes of the entire book of Ruth, that God is in control. And, and, and you see that a couple of times. She says, she says in verse uh, 20, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She says it again at the end of verse 21, the Almighty has afflicted me. The Almighty, that name for God, means the sovereign one. He's responsible for the way my life is going. And I submit to you again, regardless of how she may be handling it, that is evidence of faith in her life. She may be having a hard time with God, but she has not given up on God. And actually, if you go back to the beginning of this morning's passage, there's even more to suggest that there's a remnant of faith in her life. For one thing, go back to verse 6. It begins by telling us that she went back to Bethlehem, but look, pay close attention as to why she went back. Because it says in verse 6, she went back to Bethlehem, her hometown, because she heard the Lord had visited Bethlehem in giving them food. She heard God's working over there. I, it's not going so well over here. I want to be where God is working. And because she heard God was working, she says, I'm going to go back. I suggest to you as well that there's a remnant of faith in her life because Look at the the blessing again that she pronounced over her two daughters-in-law in in seeking to send them away. She said in the middle of verse 8, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead, that is, my husband and your husbands, and with me. And may the Lord grant that you find rest each in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And then... Perhaps most of all, there's her use of the word, in my translation, yours may render it slightly differently, but in verse 8, the word kindly. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt kindly with our family. And the reason I want you to pay attention to that word is because the Hebrew term behind it is a word we would pronounce it, our our best effort to say it would be hesed. The, The word behind kindly there is has said, and has said is, well, it's not only one of the central doctrinal themes of the book of Ruth, it is actually, has said, the richest, the single richest expression of God's love for sinners that's found in the entire Old Testament. When we think of love in the New Testament, we think of agape, if we've studied our Bibles. When we go to the Old Testament and we think of the love of God, we need to think of this term, this word, has said. 
Now, the challenge with hesed is it's such a rich word. It encompasses notes of of love and faithfulness and grace and mercy and kindness and patience and security and all these other things that there isn't a single English word. There's not even a, 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 a combination of English words that can properly express to us all that hesed means, fully convey its meaning. So the best I can do is, is simply steal somebody else's definition who says that it means this, that has said is a covenant term. A covenant is a promise, an unbreakable promise, a covenant term that, quote, combines the warmth of God's fellowship with the security of God's faithfulness. Think about that. The warmth of God's fellowship, of his friendship, just what we were praying about a little bit earlier with the security of God's faithfulness. If you want to narrow it down to, to a real simple definition we can all hang on to, said is love that won't let go. It's love that refuses to let go. And the reason I take the time to walk you through that, and the reason I think it's so critical that we recognize that there was this remnant of faith in Naomi's life is because, frankly, I don't know about you, but I need an explanation for why Ruth would want to go with her. Why would Ruth decide? Well, at first, both women wanted to go with her, and why ultimately Ruth uh, decided she was going to do so. Because if, if, if Naomi is what too many people have unfairly characterized her over the years, a cranky, bitter old woman, why would Ruth want to go spend the rest of her life with her? I mean, that's just an honest question. And, and, and for Ruth or Orpah, if either of them were to, as Ruth ultimately did, going with Naomi, saying yes to Naomi meant saying no to the, the entirety of the only life they'd ever known. It meant we leave our home, we leave our family, we leave our village, we leave our friends, we leave everything we've ever known about life in this world. And perhaps most of all, as the, as the story, as the narrative shows us, most likely any hope of ever marrying again, coming into this land as a refugee, coming into the land of Israel as a foreigner, yet they were willing to do so. Again, both of them were willing and one of them did. And the best explanation I can come up for that, to explain that, to understand that is this. They must have. They must have seen something about God in Naomi's life. Through all the hardship, through all the suffering, through all the tears, there must have been something in Naomi's life that testified that Naomi's God was real. That he was, he's getting her through these things. He's taking care of her in the midst of all these things. And whatever it was, at least in Ruth's case, whatever it was she saw about God in Naomi's life was compelling enough, was persuasive enough to say, I'm willing to leave it all behind and follow Naomi because in Naomi's life, I see Naomi's God. And I think that's the, the first thing that begins to explain both the, the nature of their relationship and and the kind of commitment and, and direction that they had made. We need to recognize there is this remnant of faith, and sometimes a remnant is all you have, right? Sometimes a remnant is all I have in a certain season, a certain day, a certain time of life, but the remnant is still real, and God is still present. And I believe, again, this is just what I can see. It's the best I can do with it. There's something about that remnant that Ruth said, I want more of that. That's what I want, and that's what I need. And I think that then, in turn, begins to explain the second thing we need to see in the story this morning. Having taken a look, first of all, at, at the remnant of Naomi's faith, we then see in even greater detail, secondly, the quality of Ruth's devotion. The quality, the nature of Ruth's devotion 
to her. Again, if you, if you look at, at the heart of this story, around about verse 10 on down 11, 12, and, and 13, what you see in that moment as this critical time of, of, of departure has come is Naomi is using every trick in the book of persuasion she can come up with to get these young women to stay, to not go with her. She uses logic. She paints pictures. She's, right, she's creating scenarios and, and, and all these things to say, listen, you really don't have to do this. In fact, it would be better for you, based on what I can see, that you stay. She does everything she can to release these two young women from any sense of obligation to her. And in verse 14, if you look at that with me, Orpah finally relents. She goes back to Moab. She disappears from the pages of Scripture forever. We have no idea what happened to her, although there's a very interesting old Jewish theory. There's a Jewish tradition that says that she went back to Moab and became the mother of Goliath. I don't know where they came up with that. <laughs> but, but for our purposes, she's gone. But what does the rest of verse 14 say? It says, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. That word clung means to stick together. And, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, when that word appears, it's the, the kind of, uh, or the quality of the clinging, it, it, it's used to refer to the connection between skin and bone. Pretty tough to disconnect skin from bone, and it's always messy when you do. It's used to describe the scales of a fish, one of the defining characteristics. What makes a fish a fish? Well, there's gills and there's scales, and, and, and they've got to have them. It's an essential part of their being. You don't separate it and, and still have life. It says she clung to her. And in verses 16 and 17, that quality of devotion, that nature of clinging, of commitment, compelled Ruth to make really one of the most cherished declarations you can find anywhere in the pages of Scripture. Verses 16 and 17, look at your Bible where she said this. Ruth says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord, thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. I'm just curious, show of hands, how many of you would say that to your mother-in-law? No, 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 don't, don't. don't. It's a rhetorical question. But think about that. What is, what is Ruth saying to Naomi? She's saying, from this day forward, my destiny is tied to yours. And the knot is not going to be untied. Whatever the future holds, whatever it leads to, whatever we encounter, good, bad, or, or in between, we are facing that together. In other words, Naomi, she was saying in those verses, my devotion to you, I'm going to give you four things. She said, my devotion to you is, is number one, unconditional. In other words, there's no sense in what she says to Naomi of, of, I'll stick with you unless, unconditional. Secondly, her commitment to Naomi in those words is unshakable. There's no sense of, well, I'm going to stick with you until. Till what? Till a better offer comes along. Till a better situation presents itself. There's no sense, thirdly, or, or, or her commitment to her, thirdly, unconditional, unshakable, is unequivocal. Again, no sense of, well, I'm going to stick with you, except I'm going to leave myself a couple of off-ramps to, to exit this relationship if I need to. 
And then fourthly, what she was saying there at the end of verse 17 is, is my devotion to you is irreversible. Because even what she says is, even after you die, I'm not going back. This is the life and the partnership, the friendship that I choose. And while Naomi never uses the word in verses 16 and 17, you know what that is? That's hesed. The warmth of fellowship, the security of faithfulness, the covenant love of God. Where had she learned that covenant kind of love? Through Naomi. She said, that's the nature of my commitment to you. Now, Maybe you've heard verses 16 and 17. If you've ever heard it outside the context of, of just looking at the, the story of Ruth directly, you've probably heard it in a wedding, right? It's, it's not uncommon in a wedding ceremony to hear these words used as an expression of this, this bride and this groom as, as they enter into a relationship to say, hey, this is the kind of commitment that we are making, and that's entirely appropriate. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But what I want you to know is that the application of that commitment, especially given the context in which it first appears, is, is so much greater than simply the love of a husband for a wife and a wife for her husband, because the quality, here's what I want you to, and here's really where we're going with today's message. Here's where everything else is going to flow from, is this. The quality of Ruth's devotion to Naomi here. A devotion that would without question be tested many times in the years to come, as devotion always is. But the quality of Ruth's devotion is the kind of devotion meant to define all of our relationships as believers. This is the way we are supposed to walk together. This is supposed to be true of all of us. Now, I understand that practically speaking, you can't have the same extent or depth of involvement in every other believer's life to, to the same degree. We can't all know each other in, in all the same ways. We can't all be familiar with each other's stories and circumstances to, to the same degree. There is going, that's just how life works. There is varied levels of involvement, of participation, of awareness, and of knowledge. But the quality of our love for one another is meant to be exactly the same. That even if I don't know you well, even if you don't know much about me or the person sitting next to you, well, that's supposed to be the same across the board. And I would submit to you that in the days in which we're living, that's what we need now more than ever. We need to be able to look at our brothers and sisters and say, hey, among them, they're a funny bunch. Not necessarily the people I'd choose to do life with if it were all up to me, but I know they're a I'm going to find the warmth of fellowship and the security of faithfulness. That there's a love there that won't let go. By God's grace, won't let go. That's what we're supposed to see in the quality of Ruth's devotion. And I suppose there's a lot more that we could say about that. There's a lot of ways we could drill further down into that. But, but really, when you take these two pieces for our purposes this morning, the remnant of Naomi's faith and the quality of Ruth's devotion, where I believe we're supposed to go with it and where I want to take us in our remaining time together, the third and the final thing that we need to give attention to based on what we've seen so far is this, that we need to, what we need to drill down into are some of the enduring lessons of their relationship. We're talking about relationships, relationships between believers who say they are committed to sticking and walking together. Well, what are the enduring lessons of their relationship that you and I can take with us and start working on? Not tomorrow, we can start working on and into today. 
Well, for starters, and this is sort of broadly speaking, we've touched on this already, but I want to take it a little bit further. One of the enduring lessons from their relationship that we should notice how much this whole living as a witness thing really matters. We've been talking a lot through evangelism shift, through our life-to-life groups, about living as a witness in an unbelieving world. And and the reason I think that that lesson is present here in the story, I'm not trying to drill or, or place the lesson into the story, I think it's already there. Because again, I believe that we can safely assume that as a Moabite woman who'd never been to Israel, never been to the temple, probably never heard the, the Torah, what we call the Old Testament, read in her presence, we must conclude that everything Ruth had learned about God up to this point came through Naomi. She watched Naomi walk with God through the joys and the sorrows of life. Her witness, it wasn't perfect. At times, it was barely even evident, I'm sure, but it was there, and it made an incredible difference. Now, that's that's sort of broadly speaking a lesson for us when we're not among our brothers and sisters in Christ, but the lessons for us inside the church run much deeper, because what Ruth and Naomi's relationship What their devotion, their dedication to one another shows us about sticking together, about staying and walking together as believers, is that our love for one another, well, it must be, I've got three things. These are the three biggies. You can come up with more if you want to. But in their story, what I see is that if we are going to walk together in the warmth of fellowship and the security of of, of faithfulness, well, first of all, our love for each other must be, as it was here, voluntary. There is a voluntary quality where all authentic love begins. You know, if you were to look at at, at this morning's passage in a a purely mathematical sense, you would discover that fully one-third of the passage this morning involves, is dedicated to Naomi trying to convince these two young ladies to go home. She's practically begging, she's pleading, and she's persuading to part ways with her. Yet, yet even when Orpah finally relented, what did Ruth do? She chose to stay with her. That's exactly what it was. It was a choice. Naomi gave her every out she could possibly want. And she said, no, I choose to walk with you furthermore without any promise of what might come of it. All they'd heard is that the Lord had visited the land of Israel, giving them bread. They didn't know if they'd get any when they got there. But she chose. And let me ask you something. Isn't that what authentic, enduring love, that's where it always begins, with a choice? A choice that is made and then made again and again and again and again. A choice that endures even when the feeling of love, you know it's going to ebb and flow. You know that one day it'll be there and the next day it won't. But love is a choice. It's voluntary. And that's what it was here. If we're going to walk together, we need to remember we have to choose and keep on choosing to walk together as a family. Second, we need to note another enduring lesson of their relationship is that their love, their commitment, their devotion to each other was sacrificial. There was a huge sacrificial dimension to their friendship. I told you last Sunday that before launching this series, I spent some time with our women's ministry leadership team because I wanted female perspective on these two stories because I knew there were things I was going to miss. And as I said, it was extremely helpful. Well, 
One of the, the things that, that came up a couple of times in that conversation that a couple of the different ladies volunteered as we spoke is, is that one of the things that the story of both Ruth and Esther remind them is that nobody gets to have it all. The world tells you you can somehow have it all, right? Perfect career, perfect family, wonderful retirement, great time along the way. And they said, no, 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 that's just not true. And, and these stories prove that. Nobody gets to have it all. As one of the women said, she said, we like our choices without consequences, don't we? I want to make choices, and I don't want them to hurt. I don't want to make a sacrifice. But again, all of, you don't have to live long at all. That's just not how life works. Every choice has a consequence. Every choice has many consequences. Some we see, some we don't. Some are good, and some are hard. And so don't be fooled. Here's why I'm, I'm pointing this out. Because Ruth, noble as her devotion was, Admirable as her commitment to, to Naomi was, Ruth, in saying yes to Naomi, was saying no to a whole bunch of other things. Every choice has consequences. Anything we take hold of with one hand or both hands means we have to let go to some degree of something else. That's just the way it is. And most notably, as the theme or one of the themes of, of Ruth's story will go on to show us, and as Naomi was making as clear as she could in this moment, one of the things Ruth was most likely saying no to as a young woman was the prospect of ever being married again. She's like, no, go back to your people. Go, go back to the Moabites. Find another husband. Start all over again. You come with me, that's probably not going to happen. And I want you to know that going in. And, and really, that was her whole case. If you look at, at verse 11, look there in your Bible again. Naomi said, return. Why should you go with me? I don't have sons in my womb that they could be your husbands. And, and, and even if I got married and, and, and nine months from now, I, I had a couple of twin boys, are you going to wait 25 years for them to grow up and marry? It's just it's not going to work. And, and the reason she was so adamant is because, as you may know, in that culture, at that point in time, for a woman, a husband meant a couple of things, primarily provision and protection. That's just the way the culture worked. It meant having a husband, hopefully it meant love and family and, 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 and kindness and all the rest, but it was also the path to security, to protection. There is a man here to protect in a hostile culture. There is a provider for us as a couple and as a family, while on the other side, at that culture, in that time, widowhood was synonymous with poverty, with exploitation, with being left behind and forgotten. And, and, and what Naomi knew is, how much more is that going to be true with Ruth as a foreigner? I mean, she's going to be, even if it's possible, further down the societal scale. But what do we see here? Well, somehow, even so, Ruth's love for Naomi overruled all of that. Somehow, it overruled her own dreams and desires. Remember, she hasn't read chapter 2 yet. We know where the story's going. We know there's an incredibly, unspeakably happy ending. Ruth does not know that. And she makes a sacrifice. Because genuine love is not only voluntary, it is also always going to be sacrificial. And then the third, the third label I'd sort of stick on, on their relationship that is an enduring lesson for us as well is that the nature of their commitment to one another was tenacious. It was tenacious. That means there was a stick-to-itiveness 
about it. There was a, a fight, so to speak, in it. And the reason that was so, and the reason we can know it's so, is this. And, and this, may, this may, at least in my view, be the most instructive thing about the nature of their relationship that we can draw from this story. And that is this. And again, if you see, look at verse 17, you see this. Perhaps the most instructive thing about their relationship is that Ruth and Naomi began with the end in view. All right? Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And guess what? Even after you die, I'll stay because I'm going to be buried there too. They began the relationship not knowing when it would end, but knowing how it would end and, and what the terms of it ending would be. They began with the end of the relationship. In other words, I've already settled where this is going, Naomi. Now all we have to do is figure out how to walk the path from point A to point B together. Isn't there security in that? A commitment that says that the end is already determined. By God's grace, this is what it will be. It's, it's the same thing a bride and groom are supposed to mean when they say, till death do us part. We've already settled the end. We don't know when it's going to end, but we know how. And, and by God's grace, that's the commitment we're going to make. And, and the best word I've got to describe what that means is tenacity, a commitment, a dogged, determined commitment, a commitment that assumes risk. All love is risk. A commitment that assumes compromise. I'm not always going to get my way. In fact, I'm going to seek your way before I seek mine. And a commitment that assumes lots and lots and lots of forgiveness is going to be needed and when needed, will be given. Really what it means, tenacity in, in devotion, in love, in walking through life together as believers means this. I'm going to figure out what it takes to walk with you even when I don't much like you. And even when maybe you don't much like me. But God can work that out. And that's why this morning my question isn't what I thought it was going to be. The to me, the obvious question would be the rhetorical question to say, now, now why is that so hard to do in the church? But <laughs> I already know the answer to that. Because there's people like me in the church, right? Who aren't perfect. Who make mistakes. We let each other down. We hurt each other intentionally, unintentionally. We live in a broken world. We all can understand why that is so hard to do in the church. So here's my question. Why is it so easy for so many to not do in the church? If that's the standard that the scriptures lay down, why does it seem, especially today, so easy for so many followers of Jesus to not do that in the church and to not do that with their church? To say, I voluntarily, sacrificially, tenaciously will walk with you. Because that's what God has asked us to do. Listen, we applauded in Ruth. Good job, Ruth. We expect it from others. That's why we get so irritated when people don't come through. We expect people to, to stick together. But i got to be honest, sometimes I don't even ask it of myself. And, and it seems like I may not be, these days, the only one. 
And that's why I believe that among the most enduring lessons of Ruth and Naomi's relationship is that if, that, if there's going to be a culture shift among the people of God, our church, any church, because I think this is, talk about a pandemic, this is a pandemic among the people of God, turning it around begins when we look each other in the eye and say, let's stay together. Let's decide how it's going to end and with whom it's going to end and then figure out how to do it. Because isn't that precisely how Jesus loves us? Voluntarily. You did not choose me. I chose you. Sacrificially, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Tenaciously, lo, I am with you always. Always. And that's why the big idea this morning, easy to say, but we've got to live it out, is this, is that we must love each other as Jesus loves us. We must choose We must commit, we must make it our ambition to love each other as Jesus loves us. That is the only way believers can truly walk and stick and stay together. Father, we know when we read your word and we look, I don't know, particularly in my mind's eye, I go to the upper room and the last night of Jesus' life and as he's pouring out, knowing what's ahead of him, just hours away, but he's pouring out of his heart to those 11 disciples. Listen, they're going to know who you are by your love for one another. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And on and on he went. Father, again, I don't have insider information, but I have a hunch that that even if our faces weren't in Jesus' mind's eye, our, our lives were on his heart. He wanted the same thing and wants the same thing for us. Father, we know as believers we're supposed to offer the world something different. And, and, and we want to, Father. Our, our ambitions, our desires, our goals are so good. And yet life in the real world is so very hard. And Father, I'll be the first to confess, it's far easier to quit than to commit. But Father, if the world is going to see Jesus, if people are going to know Jesus while there is still time while it's still called today and father even when there's only a remnant of faith in us as there was at that point in time in Naomi father apparently that can be enough to point people to Christ to show there's something different father I pray that we will make loving one another a fight the right kind of fight a fight a battle worth pursuing one worth winning Father, give us help because it scares us. Father, make us vulnerable with one another, willing to love, willing to listen, to serve, to forgive. Father, help us. We all want to walk together, but we can't do it without your help. Father, I pray that you take the things of truth that we've looked at here this morning and seal them up in our hearts and let all the rest just be forgotten so that we leave only with the words of Jesus the words of your word ringing in our ears and dwelling in our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.